Hey everyone, um, this is GPS 220, at least for this week, <laughs> it is um, online and being recorded. So right now, um, if you're listening to it as a podcast, you're hearing my voice, you're not seeing anything. Um, but if you are um, watching this right now, you can obviously see me um, kind of go through the motions here to, to figure things out. So basically, um, this is what my screen looks like right now. We're going to go into section one. This is being recorded for both sections one and section two. So there's no big, uh, there's no difference at all. In fact, remember what I told you to check the announcements frequently when I'm done, I'll, I'll post an announcement with the link to this, um, video, as well as the link to the, the podcast lecture as well. Um, it looks like, uh, you know, I have an assignment notification, which means I need to, gr to grade a few things, but again, these are things that I see on my end. Thanks to everyone that got that very short, very simple getting to know you assignment. And I've graded almost all of them at this point. All right. So if we click on the file section, you'll see the files that I've uploaded. Um, we are going to start uh, the class today with uh, what I'm calling Introduction to Comparative Politics. If we get behind on the syllabus, it's no big deal. We're not dealing with a text right now. So all you have to do is just be prepared, you know, to, to take notes at the moment. You know, we'll see what how far we've gotten when we uh, when we come back together on uh, on next Tuesday. But uh We'll see what kind of pace we make today. We may stop in the middle. We may finish the whole thing. We may stop three quarters of the way through, um, but, uh, but anyway. Okay, let's get started. So again, if you're listening to this as a podcast, what I've just done is went to the file section of Canvas for our course, and I've brought up the lecture outline. Of course, if you're watching this on video, you can see it right here. And I'm gonna make it a little bit bigger so you can see it better. And... Let's get started. Okay, so just a, a brief note about this class. This class is called Global Perspectives in Economics and Political Science, um, GPS 220. It's one of the six GPS uh, classes that you have to take uh, while you're at Winget. It's the only one that deals with politics and economics, however. If you were to take this course at any other university in America, any other university in, in, in the state of North Carolina, this would probably be called... Um, comparative politics. All right. This is what it would be called if you, again, if you went to any other um, university. Why do we call it GPS 220? Because it kind of fits in with what we're doing here at Wingate. Um, uh, we designed this course before we actually hired the people to teach it. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the, the name is what the name is, but it's fine. It, it, it accomplishes essentially what, what this course is about. It does apply a global perspective to political and economic questions. But again, we would typically call this course comparative politics. We'll see why in just a moment. And that's why this lecture for today is called Introduction to Comparative Politics. Let's do some definitions. A lot of what we're doing today is definitions and a bit of theory towards the end. But let's get some definitions out of the way so we know where we're headed. Three different definitions of politics I want you to be aware of. The first, the process by which we make collective decisions. One of the ways that we understand politics is that it's a, a, a way that we come together to make decisions about things. So, for example, if we are um, trying to understand this, this big road that was built uh, behind Wingate's campus, the Monroe Expressway, um, you know, that was, a, that was politics that got that road built. And the reason politics matters there is because, you know, you need to have land, you need to have labor, you need to have the funding to build the road, you need to, to do some environmental um, uh, regulations. Uh, you need to figure out how much it's going to cost. You need to figure out who's going to, if, is, is this going to be a, a toll road? Is this going to be a road that you can 
drive on for quote unquote free. Um, in order to come to that end result, there had to be politics involved. People had to get together at a table and make some decisions. If you grew up here, you, you probably know this, but if you didn't, you probably don't. It took 30 years for that road to get built. Not because it takes 30 years to physically build a road, but to get all those things in place, you know, to figure out, you know, where the exits will be is a political decision. To figure out where the road ends and where it begins was a political decision. Um, and of course, all the things I mentioned before. So if we look at politics broadly defined, and I think this is the definition that I that I most um, uh, am sympathetic to, the process by which we make collective decisions is politics, right? Uh, we look at what happened a couple weeks ago, you know, the people coming together in Washington to certify the Electoral College. Now, we know all the things that happened before that before that took place uh, at this point. But that's a that's a that's a process. Right. Keyword here, process by which a decision had to come uh, and be made based on kind of collective things happening. All right. And it's spelled out in our case in the Constitution. But nevertheless, that's what we mean by a political process. Lots of different people in a room, different views, different values coming together to make a decision. Secondly, the process by which we allocate finite resources, the process by which we allocate finite resources. Again, the word process is here. Um, what is a finite resource? A finite resource is a resource that we can't just recreate, you know, by snapping our fingers. It's limited. Um, it could run out. All right. So if we look at something like getting access to clean water or access to clean air, the environmental decisions are, 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 the types of decisions like this that are often finite uh, in their scope. Um, we can't just snap our fingers and make more clean water. We have to have a political process to figure out how we go about getting clean water. So in fact, in Union County right now, that's a, that's a big discussion about, you know, what is the future of water in our community? Um, another big uh, topic right now in our community is, and, and it's not a sexy topic, but it's a political topic, is, you know, the, the amount of uh, sewage you need if you're going to build new homes, all right? You know, at what point will we, be, will we build so many new homes that we don't have the, uh, the, the sewage system to account for that? Um, that's a finite resource, the amount of land or the, the, or the labor um, or, the, uh, uh, or the fresh water or the access to water. Those things are things we can't just snap our fingers and get access to. So in other words, we need a political process to take account for that. All right. There are some political decisions that aren't necessarily finite in nature. They just they're just collective decisions that people have to have to make. All right. So there are a lot of economic decisions where if you just grow your economy, um, you just have some decisions to make. But they're not necessarily finite because you continue to grow the economy in ways that you don't anticipate. But there are some things a lot of a lot of these times environmental uh, aspects like clean water or clean air, where there's a limited resource. And because that resource is limited, then you have to make um, kind of decisions about how to do that. You know, another example of this might be like um, you have a budget, right? So the, the school system has a budget. They can only hire so many teachers. Once you decide that you can only hire this many teachers, then you have to figure out how to allocate um, the resources to those teachers. How many students are in the class? How many books do you need? Uh, what kind of resources will the teachers have access to? What kind of resources will the students have access to? In a public school system, lots of political decisions are going to be made based on the fact that resources are limited. All right, thirdly, 
one of our classic definitions, what we call the five W's. Who gets what, why, where, and when? Who gets what, why, where, and when? Look at any political decision that's made, any political decision whatsoever. And one of the things that you will find out is that there's a who, there is a what, there is a why, there is a where, and there is a when. Okay. So for example, right now, um, school loans, uh, if you if you if you have federal school loans, now if you're in college, it's a little bit different because you don't pay a federally subsidized school loan until you're graduated anyway. But, you know, if you've graduated and you have school loans and they're federally subsidized, right now that th th there's a pause during the pandemic. All right. So who benefits from that pause? Um, students that have school loans or, or former students have school loans, I should say. What do they get? What's the, what's the thing that they get? They get uh, right now a pause in paying on their school loan. Why do they do that? Because we're in a, in a terrible pandemic. Where do they get that? Well, they get that, you know, wherever their um, loan was dispersed. When do they get it? They get it now. Okay. A silly example, but nonetheless, an example that, that gives you an idea of the five W's. So again, these are three different definitions of politics that get us in a similar direction. They all deal at some level with process and they all deal at some level with kind of some kind of collective decision making. All right. But of course, in the, the latter two, we're talking about finite resources and then the, the five W's. Okay. Let's talk about what this class is about and let's talk about comparison for a moment. Let's talk about food. Okay. I want you to imagine that, um, that you're having pizza for lunch. Okay. And the reason I'm going to use pizza is because we've all had pizza before. Now they say there's no such thing as bad pizza, but I disagree. I think there is such a thing as bad pizza. Now, how do we know that there's such a thing as bad pizza? We know there's such a thing as bad pizza because of this thing called comparison. We compare things to themselves. All right. Uh, not to themselves. Sorry. We compare things to, yes, to themselves sometimes, but also to other things that are, that are similar uh, in kind. So if we've had a good pizza, right, the reason we know it's good is because we had a pizza that's not as good, right? If we've had a bad pizza, the reason we know it's bad is because we've had a pizza that's not, um, uh, that, that's better than that bad pizza. What about politics? One of the most frustrating things about politics that I deal with in my, in my not in my job so much, but just in the general public, is people making strong declarations about politics without really thinking about comparison. So-and-so is the worst president we've ever had. So-and-so, this is the worst experience we've ever This is the worst economy. This is the, okay. Now, we don't really have to do that because we have history on our side. We can actually just go back and, and, and look at history to help us out there. So many people don't. And the reason, well, I can't say the reason that they don't. I have a, I have a suspicion of why they don't. But, you know, the problem is, is that so few of us use comparison to make sense of the world we see the world that is directly in front of us, all right? This is what psychologists sometimes call recency bias, right? We see the world that is directly in front of our eyes and make strong declarations because of it. Using comparison truly helps us to make sense of the world. If I were to give you a piece of pizza today and you were to say, oh, this is the greatest I've ever had, okay? My assumption, my assumption is that you've had more than one type of pizza, hopefully more than, more than one, all right? But when people say so-and-so is the, the worst senator we've ever had in the state of North Carolina, how many other senators do you know? How old are you, right? Um, are you using history to make sense of the world, okay? Um, that's not the only reason we use comparison, right? Just to, you know, to, to play parlor games or something. That's not the only reason we use comparison. Uh, but in this particular class, we're using comparison to really understand history. 
one of the books we're going to read is going to draw some direct parallels between the pandemic we're going through right now and the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. We're going to see um, how some things look eerily similar. We're, all gonna, we're also going to see some differences, right? And so one of the reasons we're reading this book is to, to take a comparative analysis of what we're going through now based on what we went through really almost 100 years ago now, all right? Now, what I want to do now is uh, read the definition of comparative politics, uh, and then we'll take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk about the different ways we can do politics. All right. So we've been talking about pizza. Now let's talk about politics. What is comparative politics? What will we do this semester in class when given the opportunity? We'll do comparative politics. What does that mean? We'll systematically examine one political phenomena in more than one place and during more than one period and try to develop a generalized understanding of and explanation for political activity. Whew, what a big definition. All right. Let's break these, this definition down into its parts and then we can explain it a bit better. Systematically examine. What does it mean to systematically examine something? You systematically examine something by having a systematic approach. You have an approach to um, understanding or making sense of something. So if I were to systematically examine pizza... I'd eat a lot of different types of pizza and I'd compare them, all right? I wouldn't eat pizza one day for, you know, forget about it at two years and eat pizza, you know, two years later and say, oh, I know everything there is to know about pizza. Nope, not the way it works. We're looking at a systematic explanation for something. We're going to really understand and make sense of pizza, all right? So if I want to talk about politics, to systematically examine it means to not just look at one case at one point in time, but to look at multiple cases across time to make sense of it. Okay, systematically examine one political phenomena good pizza, in more than one place and during more than one period, okay? That's comparison, more than one place, more than one period. This could also mean we we have multiple slices of the same pizza at different times, okay? So we eat one slice of Pizza Hut one day and say, oh, this is the greatest ever. And you go back the next day and say, oh, it's not as good today. Maybe consistency is something that we might want to compare and examine. And try to develop a generalized understanding of and explanation for political activity. A generalized understanding is a kind of general view about a particular thing, all right? So it's a pretty much a generalized understanding for most political scientists that what happened at the Capitol on January 6th was wrong and undemocratic, okay? And the reason it was wrong and undemocratic, undemocratic is because we have about 45 other instances to compare it to, all right? Now, it's not the only undemocratic thing that's ever happened in our country. It's not the only time violence has been involved. It's not the only time the Capitol has been uh, abused, all right? But taken together, a political scientist or a historian can look at this and say, this isn't right. And it's not right because we compare it to the other things that have happened in the past, all right? Okay, let's go back to pizza for a moment. If we were to, under, if we were to try to understand pizza, we'd have to have a generalized understanding of what pizza is. What are the ingredients that make up pizza? What are the five things that you'd need to know in order to know what a pizza is? All right, crust, sauce, cheese, toppings, that's baked. Okay, so to, to look at something and say that's wrong in a right and wrong sense, to look at something and say um, so-and-so is the worst, to look at something and say so-and-so is the best, we would need to first systematically examine and then come to a generalized understanding of um, uh, that situation. Okay, so, you know, every election cycle, people say things like, gosh, I just can't stand these political ads are just also negative. Okay, negative political ads have been around as long as politics have been around, okay? Now, are they negative in different ways? Maybe. Um, are they more intrusive? Uh, perhaps, 
right? My, my kids can't watch their kids' YouTube channels without having a, you know, a political ad, you know, kind of uh, popping up. So it, it's, it's true that it could be different, right? But to say that negative ads are new, it would not be true. Okay, so that's what we mean by that generalized understanding. Of. So systematically examined, we have an approach that we're going to use. Generalized understanding means we're coming to kind of some conclusions about what this thing looks like generally. What does it generally look like to say something is democracy? What does it generally look like to say something is pizza? What does it generally look like to say something is negative campaigning and so on? Okay, second and third. Um, comparative politics is a very ambitious scope of inquiry. What does that mean, ambitious scope of inquiry? It means that comparative politics study everything under the sun, pretty much, pretty much study everything under, under the sun. Uh, typically, when we're talking about comparative politics, we're talking about a subfield of political science, a subfield of political science, which studies the domestic politics, the internal workings of every country in the world. I study the country of Estonia. That's the country that I specialize in. So I study as a comparative politics person, the country of Estonia. But I'm not looking at Estonia's relations with Russia. I'm not looking at that. That's what we call international relations. I'm looking at the internal workings of Estonia. Big news in Estonia today. Uh, the, for the, uh, the first time ever, Estonia has um, uh, nominated and approved a female prime minister in Estonia. Big news. And in fact, Estonia right now is the only country in the world that has a female uh, prime minister and a female president. Pretty cool stuff, right? That's comparative politics. Right. And the reason that we know that they, they have the only female president and prime minister, easy enough, we do comparison. All right. So the scope is ambitious. It's large. We can study all kinds of stuff. We also want to tackle the, the big questions, the questions of democracy, the questions of regime change, the, the questions of does, what does it mean to be totalitarian? What does it mean to be authoritarian? OK. And so on. It's also what we call a subfield of political science. There are four subfields of political science. All a subfield is, is it's a way uh, it's an area that you study. I'm a comparativist, meaning, meaning I study this, uh, basically. But there's also the subfield of what we call American politics, where you study specifically America. We won't study specifically America in this class, um, although we might talk about America some. We, we will talk about America some. There's international relations, which studies the world as well, but studies relationships between countries. International relations does things like study war, study diplomacy, study environmental things like climate change would be an example that you might use there. Nuclear conflict would be something that international relations would study. Comparative politics, again, studies the world, but it studies the domestic workings, right? It studies the internal workings of that particular country. And then we have political theory and political philosophy. That's the fourth subfield. Political theory and political philosophy are more abstract, uh, more theoretical approach to understanding politics. Um, they're also very normative in nature, which we'll talk about after the break. All right, let's take a break here. When we return, we'll talk about more um, comparative politics stuff. All right, and we are back. Let's widen our screen again. Okay, so what we've done initially is just provide some definitions. We've defined politics and defined comparative politics. I'll go over these things a lot more once we get back in class in person. We're gonna do a review anyway uh, once we come back in person. So if, if things go, go by too quickly for you, um, that's okay. Uh, um, you have it here. You can go back and listen to it as much as you want. But again, I'm, I'm gonna, I will provide some 
some review uh, when we come back February 2nd. All right. The different ways we do compare to politics now. All right. Now that we have some definitions, some basic definitions, how do we how do we do compare to politics? All right. Here's one of the ways we can do it. We can do it in an empirical way or in a normative way. What is the difference between these two things? An empirical approach to political science or to comparative politics, really any any approach at all that's empirical in nature, is we are using an, an approach that tries to look at the world as it is. All right. Sometimes you'll hear empirical, uh, people will say it's a positive approach. That doesn't mean like optimistic or anything like that. Just positivism is, is also associated with this. But an empirical approach tries to see the world as it is and make sense of the world as it is, right? It does not provide judgment, all right? So an empirical approach to compared to politics is looking at kind of a, um, a more scientific way to analyze politics in the world. Most people that do political science, and, and, and again, the word science here is significant, and, and we'll, see, we'll see how science and political science is a bit different than maybe it is in, in, in the natural sciences in just a moment. But this idea of political science is the idea that we can objectively, that's another good word here for an empir for empirical, we can objectively look at the world and make sense of the world as it is, as it is, okay? Well, maybe this doesn't make sense quite yet. Let me compare it to normative theory. Normative theory tries to make sense of the world how it ought to be. A normative approach to the world tries to see the world in kind of right and wrong, black and white, all right? So a normative approach to political science is trying to basically fix problems. It's saying the United States is too undemocratic and this is what we ought to do. Climate change is ravaging the earth. This is what we ought to do. So if you think about any politician, every politician is, is living in the normative world because what a politician is doing is they're trying to change the world in a way that they think is better. Okay. So Joe Biden came in on the first day and immediately, you know, did a bunch of executive orders that he thought was best for the world and and or uh, in the United States or or his administration thought was best. That's normative. When Trump was in office, he did the same thing. Okay, that's a normative approach. Political science traditionally has approached the world in an empirical way. We're trying to simply make sense of it. We're trying to understand it. All right. So what does it mean to say? Well, we know what it. I guess we 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 know what it literally is. But what does it truly mean to say that that Estonia? has both a female prime minister and a female president. Does this affect politics in any way? You know, does this make it less likely that Estonia will go to war? Does this make it more likely that Estonia will go to war? Does this make it more likely that Estonia will be able to roll out a vaccine quicker? Does it make it less likely? Okay. Or, or is, is, is gender something we shouldn't uh, get too hung up on? Is it, is it, is it a, a demographic piece that, uh, that is irrelevant to studying politics? This is what we mean by an empirical approach. We're not making any judgments at all. We're not saying what ought to be. We're not saying that Estonia should have female leadership or they shouldn't have female leadership. We're just taking it at face value and analyzing it for what it is, okay? Approaching the world as it is, okay? So I can write all kinds of stuff about Donald Trump in a very empirical way by simply dealing with the world as it is, the facts as they present themselves. Or I can write it in a normative way. This is what we ought to do. This is what we shouldn't have done, okay? And again, I would say that most Americans live in a normative space, right? Because they, they, they want to see the world in their image. They, they want to see the world in a way that, that, is, that is good for them, that is good for their family, okay? Most political scientists live in this empirical world. 
Most political scientists that write a dissertation to get a PhD in political science are doing lots of empirical things. Just taking the world as it is and trying to make sense of it, okay? Secondly, another way we can do comparative politics is by uh, comparing the, this thing called the comparative method, which uses comparison, uh, to this thing called a case study, all right? Now, just because we've used it, let's go back to Estonia for just a moment. I'm a sp specialist in this small country called Estonia. That is the case that I deal with, right? And I don't expect anyone else to know anything about Estonia in this class, right? Not a thing. Don't expect you to know anything about Estonia. However, it's important that there are people in the world like myself that know about Est uh, Estonia. Or if you take Dr. Highland, he's a specialist in Argentina. If you take Dr. Kaufman, she's a specialist in, in rural politics, all right? It's important that we have people that know these very specific cases in order to get very specific details about politics. We need these details to help us make sense of the world, okay? Comparison, on the other hand, does not do necessarily deep, detailed, uh, what we sometimes call a deep dive in politics. Comparative politics is more surface level. But in order to make sense of the world, we do have to do this comparison. So back to pizza, one moment. If you've only eaten one type of pizza in your life, all right, then you are probably an expert, a specialist in that type of pizza. You've had it so much in your life, you know every detail, you know when it's just a bit off, you know when it's perfect, right? You know when it needs to go in the oven just a little bit longer, you know when they put a little too much cheese on it. You know that because you know every detail about that piece of pizza. And if anyone came to you and said, tell me about this pizza, you'd be the expert. We need people like you to be the expert. That's a case study. This important details. But if we came to you about anything else involving pizza, you might not be very, be very helpful for us, all right? Because you don't really have a, a comparative landscape to deal with, all right? You just simply don't have that, okay? Listen very closely. Listen very closely. There's an analogy that I use in class. A case study, while case studies are important, they oftentimes miss the forest for the trees. I'll say that again. Case studies oftentimes miss the forest for the trees, meaning they get so hung up, hung up on the details, the trees, that they miss the big picture. However, the downfall of comparison is sometimes you miss the trees for the forest. In other words, in other words, you see the big picture, you see the forest, but you miss the tiny details that also matter. What we hope to do in this class is a combination of both some case studies occasionally, which we'll do, and also some comparison, which we will also do, right? And in doing both of those things, you will come to, a, I think, a better, a more fulfilling picture of what politics is. All right, thirdly, the third way that we do comparative politics. So we have an empirical or normative approach. We have a case study or comparative approach. In this class, we'll do a little bit of both. And then we have a scientific approach to studying politics. This is called political science after all. After all. What does that exactly mean? All right, those of you that are out there, um, uh, who are in what we call the hard or the natural sciences. That's chemistry, that's physics, that's biology, that's zoology. Um, anyone that's kind of in the pre-med kind of tracks, pre-nursing tracks, you all are in what we call the hard sciences. Meaning that what you do is you use the scientific method, the scientific process in order to make sense of the world. I'm in what's called the social sciences. The social sciences include economics, they include uh, sociology, psychology, um, uh, human services, all these things, social work, all these things are what we call social sciences, all right? Social sciences, again, use the same scientific approach as the hard sciences, the same, exact same one. What's the difference, okay? What's the difference? 
the difference is that in the hard sciences, you are oftentimes dealing with kind of inanimate things, things that don't have personalities or minds, uh, uh, things that can't be um, uh, uh, overly manipulated. Uh, you, you can certainly manipulate experiments in the hard sciences. I don't want to say you can't, but manipulated in the same way of the social sciences. And the social sciences, our test subjects are people, people with memories, people with anxiety, people with emotions, people with issues. So what does that mean, Dr. Ellis? The last year, okay, various pharmaceutical companies have been trying to develop a vaccine for COVID, okay? Right now we have at least two on the market. We have one from Pfizer and one from Moderna. My wife was actually in the medical trials for, for Pfizer, okay? Um, so she did her patriotic duty, let's say. When you're creating a vaccine, and I don't, Look, I don't know how to create a vaccine, right? But essentially what you're doing is you're dealing with a lot of kind of inanimate things. You're dealing with kind of chemical compounds, all right? And you can test them and you can switch them out. You can control the environment that you're creating this vaccine in. Now, yes, eventually you're going to get to human trials. And, and human trials is, is, is part of the scientific process. It does involve humans, but not in a way that deals with what we might call personality or emotions or memory, those kind of things. It's just dealing with kind of how your body reacts which is not really something that the social sciences deals with. In the hard sciences, we can control the environment in which we do experiments. And if we can control the environment, then we can replicate it. That's the second thing you need to know. If we can control an environment, then we can also replicate it. What does it mean to replicate? To do the experiment over and over and over again. Right now, um, we're at, trying to get to about a million doses a day of the vaccine. How do they create a new vaccine? They have a controlled environment in which it was created. And then they just do that process over and over and over again. All right. Control and replication, the hard sciences. The scientific approach is the same. You know, question, hypothesis, you know, experiment, results, analyze, conclusion, all that's the same in the social sciences and the hard sciences. The difference is here's the social sciences. The social sciences, I'm going to do something called public opinion polling. I'm going to call a bunch of people. I'm going to ask them. Uh, their thoughts about uh, who they want to win the presidency, all right? And some people are going to lie, and some people aren't going to know, and some people are going to stammer through. But this isn't true for everyone. We we know public opinion polling is, is, is still pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's still pretty good. In Georgia, the public opinion polling in Georgia was really, really good, okay? Um, and by Georgia, I mean the, the, the Senate runoffs in Georgia. That said, all right, it's still dealing with people. And if you're dealing with people, you're dealing with all their emotions, their energy, their, the problems they have, you know, think about if you've ever taken a test when you've been emotional, a boyfriend or girlfriend dumped you, uh, a mom or dad are, is sick and in the hospital, right? You're dealing with your own illness. It affects your, how you, it affects how you perform. All right. You are not a lab rat in a hard science experiment. You are a person with emotions and anxieties and thoughts and feelings and memories and so on and so forth. Does it mean we can't do science and political science? No. How do we know that? Because public opinion polling, it's still pretty good, right? It is not perfect. And we can't fully explain every aspect of it when we want to, like that. But think bad, okay? We have a scientific approach that we use in order to make sense of those things. Let's stop there for today. We'll come back to political behavior um, on Thursday. Again, um, just make sure to 
to, to frequently look for the announcement section. That's where you'll find this today, um, as you know, and I will see you again on Thursday. I'll probably post that lecture uh, sometime Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday night. Thanks.